I'm Ray Bradbury, and this is... Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This is also presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. I'm Alfred Hitchcock. I'm Ray Bradbury. Okay, guys, got it. So what are the three of us doing hanging around together? Well, we're going to talk about Ray's first episode for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, entitled Shopping for Death. But wait a minute, what are Ray Bradbury and Alfred Hitchcock doing hanging around together? Isn't Ray Bradbury a science fiction author? Well, as John McCarty and Brian Kelleher say in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an illustrated guide to the 10-year television career of the Master of Suspense, Ray Bradbury's reputation as a writer of fantasy and science fiction is well known, but a good portion of his developing years as a writer were spent turning out tales for such magazines as Detective Tales, Dime Mystery, and Weird Tales. In other words, mystery and suspense fiction crime tales. And as Ray himself says in the opening of Ray Bradbury Theater, People ask, where do you get your ideas? Well, right here. All of this is my Martian landscape. Somewhere in this room is an African veldt. Just beyond, perhaps, is a small Illinois town where I grew up. And I'm surrounded on every side by my magician's toy shop. I'll never starve here. I just look around, find what I need, and begin. Well then, right now, what shall it be? Out of all this, what do I choose to make a story? I never know where the next one will take me. And the trip? Exactly one half exhilaration, exactly one half terror. That small Illinois town where he grew up was Waukegan, and Ray was born there in 1920. But he didn't spend his entire youth there. I was 13 years old when my father was looking for work in the Great Depression, and we headed west on Route 66 to come to Hollywood. I was, I, I'd had my 13th birthday, and immediately I ran out to Hollywood on my roller skates to collect autographs and pictures. And the first person I met on the steps of Paramount Studios was W.C. Fields, and I got his autograph. And he signed and gave back to me and said, There you are, you little son of a bitch. So that was my introduction to Hollywood. And so at home I have thousands of autographs and pictures of me and George Burns, who became my friend and teacher, and my picture of myself and Marlene Dietrich in front of Paramount when I was 14. She was very unhappy. She didn't want to be seen with me, but she had her picture taken, and I've got it as proof. So I'm a Hollywood person. Grew up loving Hollywood, still love it, and I'm willing to criticize it. But it all started back in 1934. Now, Wikipedia says that Ray's first pay as a writer at age 14 was for a joke he sold to George Burns to use on the Burns and Allen radio show. I can't find that joke anywhere. In his book, Bradbury Speaks, Ray does not mention the joke, but he does elaborate a little bit on the George Burns connection. At that same time, I encountered George Burns in front of a theater in downtown L.A., where he and Gracie Allen broadcast their Burns and Allen show every Wednesday night. 
In those days, there were no audiences. I asked George to take me into the broadcast, and not noticing or pretending not to notice the roller skates under my arm, he took me and my friend Donald Harkins into the theater, and Burns and Allen performed their radio broadcast for an audience of two in an otherwise empty theater. During the following weeks, I wrote and gave to George Burns some primitive radio scripts, and he praised them even though he secretly knew they were terrible. He pronounced me a genius and told me I had a great future as a writer. At a banquet years later, I was given an award to Steven Spielberg when I noticed George Burns over at a table in the corner of the Coconut Grove. I stopped the proceedings and said to the audience, I've got to give my own award to George Burns, who treated me so kindly and told me that I was terrific when I wasn't back in 1934. When the program was over, George Burns ran up to me and shouted, Was that you? Was that you? I remember you. We embraced for the first time in 40 years. Sales of jokes aside, Ray's first published story was Hollerbachin's Dilemma, which was published by Forrest Ackerman in his fanzine Imagination in 1938. Here's the synopsis according to Wikipedia. Hollerbachin is precognitive and has the ability to stop time to get out of danger, but when he is faced with too many threats at once, he explodes. Now, Ray was a full-time writer by the age of 24, churning out short stories by using this philosophy. You write a short story every week, you feel good, even if it's a bad short story. And you defy yourself to write 52 bad short stories in a row, and it's impossible. Somewhere along the line, you're going to write a good one. <laughs> then something happened in his writing process that changed everything. I had um, a memory of an encounter I had when I was eight years old on the beach uh, back in Illinois on Lake Michigan. And I was on the shore with this little girl, and we were building sandcastles. And she went out in the water, and she never came back. That was my first encounter with death. I didn't understand. I kept asking my mother, why didn't she come back? Where is she? They never found her. huh? So that memory came back hmm. on that day when I was 22. I was sitting out in the sun with my portable typewriter. And quite suddenly, the memory of that little girl not coming back. So I wrote a short story to bring her out of the water, huh? 30 years later. And then when I'd finished it, Tears were pouring down my face. I realized for the first time I'd written something true and honest and real and wonderful. And from that day on, I began to go into my subconscious and drag out all these wonderful things. So, but thank God for that one memory. That short story is The Lake, published in Weird Tales in 1944. Here's a snippet from Wikipedia. In UCLA's Powell Library, in a study room with typewriters for rent, Bradbury wrote his classic story of a book-burning future, The Fireman, which was about 25,000 words long. It was later published at about 50,000 words under the name, as Ray calls it, Fahrenheit 451, for a total cost of $9.80 due to the library's typewriter rental fees of 10 cents per half hour. Now you have said that you don't write science fiction. That's right. You write about people. Well, I write fantasy, and uh, the only science fiction I've written is Fahrenheit 451. It's the art of the possible. See, Fahrenheit is a realistic science fiction novel. It, it could happen, and it has happened, of our portions of it. We're witnessing part of it in our society now. Uh, local television news 
is the sort of thing that's in uh, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, all the local television news today is crap, isn't it? Yeah. It's all 10-second uh, sound bites, 15-second sound bites. Uh, we're being fragmented. Uh, all the commercials you watch have 30 clips of film for a 30-second commercial and 60 clips of film for a 60-second commercial. Huh? So your mind is all over the place. There's no thought. The metaphors are scattered. Or, to put it another way... I wasn't worried about freedom. I was worried about people being turned into morons by TV. <laughs> uh -huh. oh, really? okay. See, we, we've never had censorship in this country. Mm -hmm. We've never burned books. And, uh, there are temporary lapses like uh, McCarthy wanted certain books taken off the shelves. Well, it was a cautionary tale. Yeah, well, he and uh, Eisenhower said put the books back. So mm -hmm. it was a mm -hmm. you know, few days. I get letters from teachers all the time saying uh, my books have been banned temporarily. I said, don't worry about it. Put them back on the shelves. Mm -hmm. And they, they come in and find them on the shelves again. And you say, gee, how'd they get back on there? You know, And you keep putting them back and they keep taking them off. And you finally win, you know. Mm -hmm. But be very quiet about it and don't ask for my help. Because if I come to your um, town to help you, I'm a big frog in a small puddle. and They're going to hate me. All of them. Mm -hmm. All the people. So you can't ask me to interfere. You do the job. Mm -hmm. You're the librarian. You're the teacher. Stand firm mm -hmm. and you'll win. And they always do. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Fahrenheit's not about censorship. It's about the moronic influence of popular culture through local TV news and the proliferation of giant screens and uh, the bombardment of factoids. All the popular uh, programs on TV, the competition programs, mm -hmm. they don't give you anything but factoids. They tell you when Napoleon was born, but not who he was. Huh? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter about the date. You should never memorize dates to hell with that. So we've moved into this period of history that I described in Fahrenheit 50 years ago. So at the risk of being turned into morons by TV, let's look at a little TV. In the early 50s, there were adaptations of Ray's stories televised in a number of different anthologies, including Tales of Tomorrow, Lights Out, Out There, Suspense, CBS Television Workshop, Jane Wyman's Fireside Theater, Star Tonight, Sneak Preview, Starlight Summer Theater, and, of course, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He had several stories adapted for radio around the same time on the science fiction anthology series Dimension X and X-1. Two of the really effective ones are Zero Hour. Jill wants you to write down Triangle. What's a triangle? Never mind. Drew will tell us when he wants us to know. It helps the invasion. How do you spell it? Hmm. Well, that's Drill. Drill, how do you Me. spell... Here's your mother, looking out the window. Me? Yes, mother? Who are you talking to? The rose bush, Mom. Only it's not really a rose bush. That's Drill. Who's Drill? He's planning the invasion. Oh, I see. Well, you better come in and clean up for supper. Your daddy will be home soon. In just a second, Mom. You got that, R? See, now what? Four, nine, seven, and A, and B, and X, and a fork, and some string, and a 
And a hexagony, hexagonal droopy. Come oh. on, Meg. Supper's in ten minutes. Okay, Mom. Just a minute. I have to tell Drill. I wish we didn't have to eat, though. It holds up the invasion. And there will come soft rains. At ten o'clock, the sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone on a street where all the other houses were rubble and ashes. At night, the ruined town gave off a radioactive glow which could be seen for miles. At 10.15, the garden sprinkler filled the soft morning air with golden fountains. The water tinkled over the charred west side of the house, the side which had been facing the blast. It was black, except in five places. One of the five places was a silhouette of a man mowing a lawn, just as he'd been the instant the radioactivity burned his image into the side of the house. Over there, a woman bent to pick flowers. Still further over, their images burned into the wood, where a small boy, hands flung into the air, higher up the image of a thrown ball, and opposite, a girl, her hands raised to catch a ball, which never came down. This is from the obituary at raybradbury.com. In a career spanning more than 70 years, Ray Bradbury has inspired generations of readers to dream, think, and create. A prolific author of hundreds of short stories and close to 50 books, as well as numerous poems, essays, operas, plays, teleplays, and screenplays, Bradbury was one of the most celebrated writers of our time. His groundbreaking works include Fahrenheit 451. Are you interested in Plato's Republic? Uh, well, I am Plato's Republic. I'll recite myself for you whenever you like. Thank you very much. Now, here's Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And here's the Corsair by Byron. She used to be married to a chief of police. Now, that skinny fellow is Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Where's Alice through the looking glass today? She should be somewhere about. Ah, now there's The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He ate his book so they couldn't burn it. Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. Oh, you see the little blonde coming towards us. Watch her blush. I'm Jean-Paul Sartre's The Jewish Question. Delighted to meet you. The Martian Chronicles. Edward, I was just thinking. Thinking's bad for you. What if... What if we actually have landed on Mars, okay? So this small Illinois town is not really an Illinois town. And? And these people are not my friends, not my family. They're Martians disguised to look like Earth people. And my mother is not... Is not our mother? Then what about me? Then you're not my brother, Edward. No, Arthur, I'm not. The Illustrated Man... Is, is that what you meant by skin illustrations? Tattoos? They're not tattoos, they're skin illustrations. Don't you ever call them tattoos. 
Dandelion Wine, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. How are your names, gentlemen? Will Holloway, Jim Nightshade. Well, Mr. Nightshade, sir, you just go right in and tell your father that Mr. Tom Fury of the Lightning Rods presents his compliments and your house is in very urgent need of protection. He wrote the screenplay for John Huston's classic film adaptation of Moby Dick. I feel old, Starbuck and bowed, as though I were Adam, staggering under the piled centuries since paradise. Stand close, Starbuck. Close to me. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into sea or sky. And was nominated for an Academy Award. He adapted 65 of his stories for television's The Ray Bradbury Theater and won an Emmy for his teleplay of The Halloween Tree. Throughout his life, Bradbury liked to recount the story of meeting a carnival magician, Mr. Electrico, in 1932. At the end of his performance, Electrico reached out to the 12-year-old Bradbury, touched the boy with his sword, and commanded, live forever. Bradbury later said, I decided that was the greatest idea I had ever heard. I started writing every day and never stopped. The unidentified clips there come from our old friend Francois Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, starring Oscar Werner and Julie Christie, which came out in 1966. The Martian Chronicles TV miniseries, starring Rock Hudson, which came out in 1980. Jack Smite's The Illustrated Man, starring Rod Steiger, which came out in 1969. And Jack Clayton's Something Wicked This Way Comes, starring Jason Robards and Jonathan Price which came out in 1983. In addition to those, Ray was responsible for the story treatment for It Came From Outer Space. What happened out there in the desert? Tell me and we'll go to the sheriff. Stand back. Whoever you are, whatever you are, I want to understand you, I want to help you. Then keep away. Keep away, John Putnam. We don't want to hurt you, you least of all. He wrote the screenplay for the film The Picasso Summer under the pseudonym Douglas Spaulding. Let's go and find him. To France? Yes, of course. Alice, come on, let's just go. But George, I, I need a passport, vaccination. I haven't got any clothes. We could leave tonight. And he adapted his short story, I Sing the Body Electric, into what became the 100th episode of The Twilight Zone. A woman built with precision, with the incredible ability of giving loving supervision to your family. Can they build a machine like a human? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't sound so good. But maybe we ought to investigate. I sing the body electric. They make a fairly convincing pitch here. It doesn't seem possible, though, to find a woman who must be ten times better than mother in order to seem half as good. Except, of course, in the Twilight Zone. 
know, that should be plenty about Ray, but there are some other things I'd like to add, plus two more clips from interviews I'd like to play. Let's start with the clips. The, the best thing I, I predicted and hoped for was space travel, of course, landing on the moon. And uh, we've got to continue with that. We've been uh, doing things with the space shuttle the last 15 years, which is a bore, you know. That's not where we belong. 200 miles above Earth, we belong on the moon. We belong on Mars, goddammit, you know. <laughs> and here we are with the damn space shuttle. It lands like a plane. I don't want to see a plane land. <laughs> and what was Ray's favorite story of all the stories he'd written? People are always asking me which of my books are my favorites. And I say, look, I have four daughters and eight grandchildren. And I don't play favorites. Right. So what's true, of, and I really am, tried to live by that. Uh, so the way I treat my grandchildren and my daughters is the way I treat my novels, my short stories. Uh, they're, they're all my loves. They're all my children. And I'm very, I'm very grateful that they happened. They happened to me. I didn't make them happen. They happened to me. Sometimes late at night, I, if I can't sleep, I'll go down in the living room, I'll open one of my books, and I'll read a paragraph, and I say, my God, I wrote that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't believe I wrote that. And sometimes I cry because it's such a, a God-given thing, you see, uh, to surprise yourself and find the surprises again and again. According to Wikipedia, Ray Bradbury is the descendant of Mary Bradbury, who was tried and convicted at the Salem Witch Trials, though she managed to escape before she was executed. He had 31 stories adapted by EC Comics. That collaboration began when Al Feldstein and William Gaines of EC Comics cobbled together two of Ray's stories without permission. When Ray heard about it, as Wikipedia puts it, he sent a note praising them while remarking that he had inadvertently not yet received his payment for their use. So EC sent a check and negotiated a productive series of Bradbury adaptations. Now, even though Ray said that Fahrenheit 451 was not about censorship, it still resonates with people on that level. In fact, there was a 2018 film version of Fahrenheit 451 starring Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon. Captain, if they succeed, how will we stop it? If the ominous is unleashed, there will be no way to stop it. All of humanity's chaotic knowledge will burst forth like mosquitoes spreading malaria. And the dark countries will take over. Even the greatest army of firemen will seem like spinning babies before the Amish. And everything our parents, our grandparents sacrificed in the second civil war will be lost. We will not let that happen. We will burn down the city tonight, gentlemen. Salamander! Oh! Salamander! Oh! The director and co-screenwriter of that film, Ramin Barani, wrote an essay published in the May 13th, 2018 issue of the New York Times Book Review, in which he says, As the virtual world becomes more dominant, owning books becomes an act of rebellion. When a printed book is in your possession, no one can track, alter, or hack it. 
The characters in my film have never seen a book. When they first encounter a library, the books are like water in a vast digital desert. Seeing, touching, and smelling a book is as alien to the fireman as milking a cow by hand would be for most of us. The firemen are transfixed by the books, but they still have to burn them. Bradbury believed that we wanted the world to become this way, that we asked for the firemen to burn books, that we wanted entertainment to replace reading and thinking, that we voted for political and economic systems to keep us happy rather than thoughtfully informed. He would say that we chose to give up our privacy and freedom to tech companies, that we decided to entrust our cultural heritage and knowledge to digital archives. The greatest army of firemen will be irrelevant in the digital world. They will be as powerless as spitting babies next to whoever controls a consolidated internet. How could they stop one person hiding in his parents' basement with a laptop from hacking into thousands of years of humanity's collective history, literature, and culture, and then rewriting all of it, or just hitting delete? And who would notice? There are seven total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, for which Ray wrote either the story or the teleplay or both. His next teleplay is Designed for Loving, episode six of season four. But the next episode, based on one of his stories, is coming up in two episodes, episode 20, And So Died Ryabushinska. Now, in addition to that, Ray had one story, October Game, published in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. That's in the June 1957 issue. And he had stories published in nine different Alfred Hitchcock fiction anthologies. Now, I can't leave Ray without playing this clip from the Martian Chronicles miniseries, which I saw when it was first on, and which, when Rock Hudson mentioned what year it was, seemed very far in the future to me. What year is it? 2007. That means nothing to me. To me, it is the year 4462853, SEC. 2007 and on Mars. If it wasn't for those damn space shuttles that land like a plane. And Ray Bradbury died in 2012 at the age of 91. Now here's Hitch with me filling in the gaps in what has become a regular thing. Oh, but first I have to say that as the scene opens, Hitch is opening a door. It opens silently. He closes it. Then he uses an oil can on one of the hinges and opens it again. There, that's better, much better. The least we can do is to provide the proper atmosphere. This is truly an extraordinary item. Loud, squeaking fluid. It is also excellent at making old shutters bang. And on dark nights, one can spray it in the air in case the wind isn't whistling loud enough. It's very practical, too. It can make old shoes squeak like new again. Now that we have established our mood, I should like to tell you that tonight's story is by Ray Bradbury and is known by the provocative title of Shopping for death. It will follow the commercial. I repeat, you will first see the commercial, then our story. I make this clear because many of our listeners have been confusing the two. It's immaterial to me, except that after seeing the commercial, they very often concentrate too much on that rather than on the story. Ladies and gentlemen, the commercial. So here's Shopping for Death. 
First broadcast January 29th, 1956, starring Joe Van Fleet, written by Ray Bradbury, based on his short story, and directed by Robert Stevens. The episode opens with a trio of disasters. First, a car going too fast passes a truck and crashes so that it knocks over a traffic light. In the crowd are two older men in white suits. They stand out in the foreground and in the light. One of them writes in a notebook. Now the scene of the car passing the truck looks like old-time stock footage. The car is not a 1950s car. It looks like a 30s car. This may just have been all they could bother with for a five-second segment. On the other hand, maybe there's more to it than that. In any event, the scene fades to the second disaster. A man falls from a high-rise, and unfortunately, it doesn't really look like a man. It looks pretty clearly like a little doll, but maybe that's intentional, too. Maybe he fell, or maybe he jumped. One minute, I saw him standing up against the window, and then I saw him between, right between the window and the ground. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, the two older men are in the crowd again, with the same one with the notebook writing in it. They are no longer dressed in white suits, so I suppose that means they are not angels. And the scene fades into a fire engulfing a building. The two men are in the crowd again, and this time someone speaks directly to them. Somebody left a cigarette burning. That's what it was. A little thing like that, now look at it. Look at the whole darn building. So now they have gotten involved. They've gone from being separate from the crowd in their white suits to blending into the crowd to having the crowd talk to them. And this leads directly to a beautiful transition where smoke fills the screen from the fire covering the two men. And then they walk out of the smoke, which at this point is now steam coming from a cleaner's. And they walk out onto a New York City street. But before we go there, let's look again just briefly at the three disasters we had. We have stock footage of an old automobile. We have a doll toppling off what is probably a toy building with very overly dramatic music playing. This all reminds me of something like this 1930s radio episode of The Shadow. Engine room. Stand by for test number 11. Engine room standing by, Commander. Get full speed ahead! Engine room! Hello! Hello, engine room! Chief Engineer Twain reporting. Boiler explosion, sir. Three casualties, sir. What, what happened, Commander? Boiler explosion, Lieutenant. Hard luck, sir. Luck nothing. You mean another case of sabotage? Yes, sabotage.
returning to base. Cruiser returning to base. Explosion. Explosion in after gun turret. Three dead. Six wounded. Suspect sabotage. Suspect sabotage. <laughs> Post number four reporting. Explosion and fire. Explosion and fire and destroyer dry dock. Sag Island shipyard. Sag Island shipyard. You can find this sort of opening montage in a number of different melodramatic radio programs. And you can hear the similarities to the way this TV episode starts. And I think it's intentional. We begin with two men examining tragedies in sort of a distant, academic way. The tragedies don't seem quite real to them, and they aren't real. There's melodramatic music. There's a 1930s automobile crashing in the 1950s. There's a doll falling off a building. But as I said, as they move further and further along, they get more drawn into it until by the time they pass through that smoke into that steam, they're at what seems to be a fairly realistic 1950s street scene. It's a hot day. Kids are playing around a fire hydrant. Men are out in their shirt sleeves. And things are going to get even more real than that. Our two men are dressed in coats and ties as if they are still not part of the atmosphere around them. But they're going to start sweating pretty soon. Because they have a mission to perform. There. 989. That's where she lives. Now, our two men are played by John Quaylen, whom we have seen before, and Robert H. Harris, whom we have not. John Quaylen, you may remember, was Mr. Step in episode 14, A Bullet for Baldwin. And he's in one more episode, Help Wanted, episode 27. Robert H. Harris was born Robert H. Hurwitz. He started in the Yiddish theater as a teenager and then moved on to Broadway. He was a very familiar character actor on television in the 50s and 60s. He's in 10 episodes of Suspense, two episodes of Inner Sanctum, the Tales of Tomorrow episode, Time to Go, the science fiction theater episode, Dead Storage, and the thriller episode, Papa Benjamin. He's in seven episodes of Perry Mason. Among his seven appearances, he played the murderer three times, the murder victim once, and the defendant once. I couldn't find your keys, lover. If I wanted you to look in there, Miss Sims, I would have left the drawer open. That's why I was curious. What do you keep in there, postage stamps? I don't know why I tolerate your insolence. (laughs) Don't you really? Where have you been all day, spying on Country Boy and that gal? It's none of your business. Why don't you give up playing Peeping Tom? Do you think I'm going to let Barnaby swindle me out of all that money? I found the heiress. She should be good for 75000 at least, and half of it is rightfully mine. <laughs> what do you intend to do about it? Sue him? You may laugh, Miss Sims, but no one ever got the better of Edmund Arthur Lacey. I don't intend for it to start now. As you can tell from that clip, he often played unsympathetic characters. Here he is in an episode of The Wild Wild West. I prefer the kind of hunting where you don't put the trophies on the wall, that's all. But hunting's more than a game, sir. It's a science. But certainly you should know that. After all, you track down human beings, a known quantity, more or less. However, I prefer to meet my quarry on his savage terms and let him know who's master. And here he is in an episode of Land of the Giants. 
Always coming to me and begging for money. <laughs> Every cent I have, I got by being as savage and ruthless as this wild animal. <laughs> Any nephew of mine could be such a, a spineless and sniveling beggar as you, I'll never know. He's in plenty more TV series of the time, and he's even in a couple of acclaimed movies, Peyton Place and America, America. But at the time of this episode, he was mainly known as Jake Goldberg, whom he played in 44 episodes of the TV version of The Goldbergs, which was on from 1953 to 1956 in what Wikipedia calls one of his few sympathetic roles. This, I think, is another sympathetic role, though it's more complicated than that. Robert H. Harris is in eight total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, in which he plays Mr. Appleby. And Robert H. Harris died in 1981 at the age of 70. So the two men join the street scene. They walk along behind the fire hydrant that is spewing out water in which the kids are playing. The Robert H. Harris character walks with a cane. He has his other hand around the John Quaylen character's arm. It's like they're an old couple out for a stroll. But the John Quaylen character turns to Robert H. Harris and says, Clarence, why are we here? Why drag me off day after day in this hot, humid weather? to accidents and crimes, and now this infernal nonsense about some woman I've never even met. Why? We've got a job to do, that's why. We owe it to ourselves, to society, to be here. All our lives, for almost 50 years, we've been insurance salesmen, right? Right. We've sold millions of dollars worth of insurance, which has helped thousands of needy people, right? Right. Well. Three months ago, we retired, didn't we? We did. But statistics prove that that retired men die sooner than men who remain active. Yes, yes, I know, but I'm for sitting on the sidelines. Sidelines? Elmer, Elmer, how can you sit by after seeing what you've seen in the last three months? So now we've had some exposition. We've also learned the characters' names. Robert H. Harris's character is Clarence. John Quaylen's character is Elmer. When Elmer says he's for sitting on the sidelines, he actually sits on something that we never see that's right next to the newsstand. Clarence recounts to Elmer the things they've seen in the last three months, which are the things we saw at the beginning of the episode. All three of those men killed by their own carelessness. Why? What's behind it? I want to know. As Clarence ponders this, the camera moves in to a tight close-up. Elmer is in profile on the left. Clarence, head-on, looking off into space on the right. We can see that their faces are soaked with perspiration. They are certainly part of the environment now. And yet, while they've been caught up in the environment, they still seem somewhat apart. It's like a dance as they walk through the crowd. No one looks at them. No one acknowledges them. When they stop for lemonade, the man in the stand looks at them just barely and serves them, but they don't pay. And then we get this short exchange. Now, this this woman here in this tenement, to see her is to know her. She staggers the imagination. She's unbelievable. So are we. So what does that mean, so are we? Does it mean it's unbelievable that we're doing what we're doing? 
Does it mean that we're unbelievably great insurance agents? Or does it mean that on some level, Elmer is still seeing themselves as being not part of the real environment? Well, we don't have long to ponder that because the woman they're waiting for is on her way to entering. She steps out of her building onto the stoop. She has something hanging out of her right sleeve, maybe a strap from her brassiere. She immediately gets into words with the man leaning out of his window and then encounters these two older ladies with a baby carriage. That get out of the way is said to Clarence, whom she bumps into. So Clarence is no longer doing a dance through the crowd. He's now part of the crowd. She has made him part of the crowd by bumping right into him and saying something directly to him, which is the first time that's happened here in this street scene. In fact, it's the only time it happens, which emphasizes that he and she will have a unique relationship. The woman goes to buy ice cream from an ice cream cart. These two kids, one black, one white, follow her and are greatly amused by her. Then she goes to the butcher shop, forcing her way through people. Come on, get out of the way. What are you doing blocking the entrance? I right, move over. There's a nice high-angle shot as she barges her way in, showing the ceiling fan above the butcher shop. It's not doing much good because the butcher, like Elmer and Clarence, who have also just entered, is drenched in sweat. Everybody else clears out, which leaves us with those four, Elmer, Clarence, the woman, and the butcher. Let's look at those last two. The woman is played by our lead, Joe Van Fleet, born Catherine Josephine Van Fleet. She began her career on Broadway, performing in The Winter's Tale and King Lear, and she won a Tony Award in 1954 for playing Jessie Mae Watts in The Trip to Bountiful. It was Ilya Kazan who brought her to Hollywood, casting her as James Dean's mother in East of Eden. What does Cal stand for? Caleb, what's in the Bible? your brother's name? Aaron. Oh, that's in the Bible, too. What's he like? Well, he looks like you. Well, is he like me? No, he's good. Now, two episodes ago, I mentioned that Marissa Pavan lost the Best Supporting Actress Oscar in 1955. The winner of that Oscar that year was Joe Van Fleet in East of Eden, which was her first film role. Interestingly enough, she's also in The Rose Tattoo, which is what Marissa Pavan was nominated for. Now, Joe was still in her 30s when she played that role. Her obituary in The Independent says, Joe Van Fleet was a powerful actress, described by Ilya Kazan as full of unconstrained violence, who frequently played roles older than herself. On both stage and screen, she created a gallery of stoic, fiercely dominant women, many of them proud or manipulative mothers. A couple of examples of her playing roles older than herself are I'll Cry Tomorrow, in which she played Susan Hayward's mother, even though she was only a year and a half older than Susan Hayward, Wild River, 
directed by Ilya Kazan, in which she played an 89-year-old matriarch opposite Montgomery Clift and Lee Remick. You're the only person who hasn't sold in this valley. Well, that's all right with me. Grandma? Yes, Carol? What? Huh? According to her obituary, she would spend five hours every morning getting into her makeup and applying wrinkles, insisting that the liver spots were put on her hands, even for long shots where they would not be seen. When Betty Davis turned down the role of Paul Newman's mother in Cool Hand Luke because it was too small, Joe took that role. I always hoped to see you well fixed. Have me a crop of grandkids to fuss around with. <laughs> I'd like to oblige you a little bit, too. Right off, I just don't know where to put my hands on them. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I wish the people was like dogs, Luke. Comes a time, a, a day like when the bitch just don't recognize the pups no more, so she don't have no hopes nor love to to give her pain. She just don't give a damn. They, they letting you smoke here? She also played Peter Sellers' mother in I Love You, Alice B. Toglas. Looks like a nice brownie, Harry. Oh, is it? Mm. Really good. Mm. One more. Mm. Oh. Mm. Oh. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Ultimately, her career did not go as she hoped and expected. And as Ilya Kazan said, Joe stagnated and, since she knew it, was bitter. And as she became bitter, she became more difficult. And you can hardly blame her because she ended up doing things like the 1973 made-for-TV movie Satan's School for Girls. We here at Salem Academy feel that girls of good breeding are more easily groomed into young ladies of culture and refinement. We do have our traditions here. But then I suppose, like most traditions, they're meant to be broken. She's in the suspense episode Before the Act, the Inner Sanctum episode Hour of Darkness, and the thriller episode The Remarkable Mrs. Hawk as Mrs. Hawk. I wanted to mention this anecdote because it demonstrates her dedication to method acting. In The Gunfight at the O.K. Corral, she played Doc Holliday's girlfriend. Doc Holliday was played by Kirk Douglas, and he later talked about his amazement at her approach. He said, In one scene, I had to beat up my hooker girlfriend. Joe wanted to be pumped up and asked me to slap her before we did the scene. We did it over and over, and every time she asked me to hit her and hit her harder. Now, according to her obituary, Joe lived on New York's west side, where she became known for her unconventional behavior. Legend has it that when asked by the checkout assistant in the local supermarket for some form of identification, she unzipped her handbag and pulled out her Oscar. She's in three total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The next is Reward to Finder, episode six of season three. And Joe Van Fleet died in 1996 at the age of 80. I want a good hunk of meat. Not too fat. Yes, ma'am. A good hunk, nothing spoiled, you hear? 
Yes, ma'am. Yeah, stuff you give me yesterday, I give to the cat, so don't give me no more like that. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We were going to look at the butcher, too. He is played by Michael Ansara, and he was born in the Mandate for Syria and the Lebanon, immigrating to the United States with his family when he was two years old. So what is or was the Mandate for Syria and the Lebanon? Well, Wikipedia says it was a League of Nations mandate founded after the First World War and the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. The mandate system was supposed to differ from colonialism, with the governing country acting as a trustee until the inhabitants would be able to stand on their own. At that point, the mandate would terminate and an independent state would be born. In 1953, Michael appeared in Joseph Mankiewicz's big screen adaptation of Julius Caesar, along with Marlon Brando. But what really made his name was playing the lead role of Cochise in the television series Broken Arrow. Cochise? This is Lieutenant Bledsoe. Lieutenant, this is the chief of the Chiricahuas. Jose, one of his sub-chiefs. My brother, I have heard strange news. What sort of news? We have word that Haskell is alive and in this country. Haskell was reported killed in action at Valverde. You were at Valverde. Did you see him die? No. Then it is possible he is alive. The army says he's dead. Right, Lieutenant? That's right. I've seen the records myself. You were not in this country when it happened? The affair at Apache Pass? No, sir, but... I may have heard the story. From the white people you heard it. Exactly what did happen. I do not wish to speak of it. At the time that he was in that series, the 20th Century Fox publicity department arranged a date for him with Barbara Eden, and the two later married. Michael guest starred on I Dream of Jeannie several times, including playing the blue gin who had imprisoned Jeannie in her bottle. I am the blue gin. You mean there's more than one of you? <laughs> You, you mean I opened the wrong bottle? I have been imprisoned in that bottle for 1,500 years, and yours is a hand that freed me. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I've been through all this before. You're very grateful, and I can have anything in the world I want. Yeah. I have taken an oath to destroy whoever opened that bottle. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Destroy? Why would you want to destroy me? I, I, I'm the one who just rescued you. If thou had rescued me a 1,000 years ago, I would have been grateful. But for the last 500 years, I have become angry. How dost thou wish to die? And yes, they colored his skin blue in that episode, which just underlines that Michael had the kind of face that made Hollywood want to use him as Indians, aliens, genies, and people in biblical epics. He's a taskmaster in the Ten Commandments. He's Herod's commander in The Greatest Story Ever Told. And in the robe... Can you help me? I'm looking for a man. A man? What's his name? Jesus. I must warn him. You're too late. Even now, he's before Pilate. They found him. He was betrayed to them. And by one he loved and trusted. By his disciple, who sat at his left hand. Why? Because men are weak. Because they are cursed with envy and cowardice. Because they can dream of truth, but cannot live with it. So they doubt. They doubt the fools. Why must men betray themselves with doubts? Tell them, the others, find them and tell them not to doubt. Even now, not to doubt. Tell them to keep their faith 
They must keep faith. Wait. Tell who? Who are you? My name is Judas. He had a full career in television. He was in episodes of It Takes a Thief. I was so worried about you. Nothing is going to happen to me or to you. My mission was most successful. The man from UNCLE. Sophie, the camel, I did promise yes, but not to kill a traveler. It is against tradition. Mm -hmm. Look at him, my daughter. Look at that leg. So we cut off the leg. I sell him as is, anyway, half price. But he will bleed to death. So then I sell only his yellow hair and throw the rest of him away. And in the quartet of Irwin Allen shows, Lost in Space, where he played the father of Kurt Russell. I wish to prove my courage to the Earth Boy. Instead, you proved your stupidity. I'm exceedingly sorry, Father. You did well, Earth Boy. Thank you, sir. You showed great courage. The truth is, I was too scared to run. Even the bravest man experiences fear. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, where he played a Russian. You two know each other? No, we have never met. An honor, Comrade Kransky. I am Gregory Malinov. Oh, yes, I've heard excellent reports of your work. Thank you. Land of the Giants, where he played one of the giant aliens. Which of my enemies do you and your friends work for? Professor Kaler, yes? I don't know any Professor Kaler. Do not lie to me. I'm not lying. I never heard of Professor Kaler before tonight. In fact, I never heard of your name until you just told me. I'm no fool. Kaler has access to captured Earthmen through his friends and governments. He is afraid I might surpass him. And the time tunnel, where he plays another alien, this time with silver skin. You said she was all right. I just said she was not ready to see you. You've done the same thing to her that you did to the others. Nonsense. The others are in what we call suspension. There is nothing changed about her. Look. But his best-known television roles are probably that of the soldier from the future in the Outer Limits episode Soldier, written by Harlan Ellison, and possibly the inspiration for the Terminator movie franchise. You're going home with me now, Corlo. I don't peep. Uh, home. It's, it's, a, it's a place to live. It's a house, a place where you can rest, and nobody will ever lock you in. Barracks? CO? No. No barracks, no commanding officer, no other troops, no war, nothing but freedom. I told you about freedom. That of Mr. Freeze in the Batman the Animated Series series. Freeze! That's Mr. Freeze to you. And, of course, that of Kang, the Klingon, in the Star Trek the Original Series episode, Day of the Dove. When I take this ship, I'll have Kirk's head stuffed and hung on his cabin wall. Michael reprised the role of Kang in both Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. Michael and Barbara Eden divorced in 1974. They had one son, Matthew, who sadly died of a heroin overdose in 2001 at the age of 35. Michael is in three total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, along with Robert H. Harris. 
and Michael and Sarah died in 2013 at the age of 91. Back in the butcher shop, things are continuing to heat up. The two men watch her, the shadow of the spinning fan, appearing on their shirts and suit coats. Isn't she classic? Ever seen anything like her? How about brains? You got any brains? Yes, ma'am. Let me see. That's a provocative question if I've ever heard one. She looks down into the case, and the camera moves behind the counter, so we see in a nice shot her head as she pokes around, peering in from the other side. The butcher opens up his side, and we realize we've been seeing her through two panes of glass, now only one. Our looking glass view opens up into a bit more reality. The next shot presents us with even more reality, a long shot showing, indeed, that all the other people have left the shop. It is now down to these two people, with our two observers not yet even in the shot. But as the butcher and the woman move over to the scale, Clarence and Elmer move into the shot. Give me some good, nice, fresh beef brains. And make sure they're fresh, too. I don't want none of the yesterday stuff, you hear? Let's see what you got there. Are them beef brains? I don't want none of them sheep brains, you hear? All right, come on now. Do me a favor, keep your big fat thumbs off the scale this time. As the woman harps at the butcher, even taking some of the brains and throwing more on the scale, we get a close-up of his sweaty face, then a close-up of his butcher knife. And we see, and Clarence sees, that he is thinking about murder. But the butcher doesn't use his knife on the woman. He uses it on the brains. She is oblivious to it. So when he finishes giving her a look that expresses total contempt, all she does is take the package and say, Thanks for nothing. And charge it! She heads for the exit. The camera follows her, but stops at Clarence and Elmer. The butcher approaches them and asks them what they want. They make excuses and exit. Outside, it seems darker, as if a cloud has gone over the sun, as they watch the woman head for the grocery. Now, do you see how much she needs our help? She certainly does. But let's get away. She's a destroyer. She is. No, Elmer. Not a destroyer. She wants to be destroyed. Begs to be murdered. And if we don't help her, her name will make the obituaries. Obituaries? No. Front page headlines in the tabloid. There's a moment in this conversation where it looks like you can see Robert H. Harris's breath. So I think it's a lot cooler on that set than the impression we're getting from all that sweat. While Clarence and Elmer talk, the woman is disputing with the grocer. She knocks apples off of the display out into the sidewalk and street, then crosses the street where a car nearly hits her. She counters by throwing one of the apples at the car's windshield. She returns to her apartment building, yelling at the kids on the stoop as she goes. And now Clarence and Elmer have a decision to make. There's only one way to approach her. Now, I've studied her every day for the past week. The direct approach is the only approach. Come in. Clarence and Elmer enter the apartment building just in time to catch an argument between the woman and her husband.
The camera shows us her husband leaving the apartment, just his legs, as he walks along upstairs. Then he comes down the stairs, the banister shaking in his hands. And he is so angry that when he gets to the bottom of the stairs, he pulls the round volute off the banister and it breaks in his hands. He drops it and exits. The husband is played by Michael Ross, billed as Mike Ross here. He's in four episodes total of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is number 22, episode 21 of season two. And he has a very interesting filmography. He's in DOA. Play off, Chester, cut it out. Shut up! Who asked you? Better let him answer. The clerk might know he's in. I was a communist for the FBI. What happened? I don't know. I don't know. Get him over to first aid. Come on, Frank. All right, break it up. Let's go. Back to work, you fellas. All right, let's go. Looks like the guy's going to lose his arm. Too bad. What happened? Carelessness? Not his carelessness. He's an expert at that job. I got another guy all set for it. Carson. Yeah? Take over. Okay. Bonzo goes to college. If Bonzo gets his hands on that ball again, there's no telling what may happen. Lefty, hmm? I'm getting a bad headache. Do you think some fresh air will help you? It might. I doubt it. A change in temperature might be bad for your world. I suggest you stay here until the game is over. Then we can settle our bets one way or the other. The Francis the Talking Mule film, Francis Covers the Big Town. I heard a shot. Mr. Garnett. He's dead. Look, the killer's outside. I gotta get... No, you don't. I don't. I don't want. You don't go away. What what do you mean? I don't... I didn't kill him. We'll let the cops decide that. Oh, no. Tarzan and the She-Devil, in which he plays the She-Devil's servant, Salim, which I believe is a silent role. Salim, have my guy step inside for a moment. Captain Kidd and the Slave Girl, in which he plays Blackbeard. Who's the leader here? I am. Your servant, Captain Blackbeard. And Creature with the Atom Brain, in which he plays one of the zombie monsters. What are you doing in here? I'm from Buchanan. If you know that, you know why I'm here. It's no use, McGraw. I said I would live to see you die. I am watching you now. He's also Tony the Bartender and the Space Giant in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. He's in the Buster Keaton story. He's in the Birdman of Alcatraz and in the Jerry Lewis movies The Nutty Professor and The Patsy. And he also plays Al in the Andy Griffith Show episode Barney Mends a Broken Heart. I thought you were staying in tonight. I thought so, too, but I changed my mind. It's a woman's prerogative to change her mind, ain't it? Oh, yeah? Yeah, so get lost now. I'm busy. Uh, if you'll excuse us, I think we better leave. But just a minute, Curly. I ain't good enough for you, huh? You'd rather go out with a couple of squirts like this. Ah, shut up, Al, and beat it. We don't appreciate being called squirts. Yeah, we don't appreciate that at all. Oh, you don't, eh? (laughs) Michael Ross died in 1993 at the age of 81. So now, at last, Elmer looks at the mailbox, and we learn the woman's last name. Right here it is, Mr. and Mrs. Albert Schreiber, apartment 321. How fitting. What a name. The Butcher Bird. Shrike. Shrike, the Butcher Bird. According to Wikipedia, the family name and that of the largest genus, Lanius, is derived from the Latin word for butcher, 
and some shrikes are also known as butcher birds because of their feeding habits. Shrikes are known for their habit of catching insects and small vertebrates and impaling their bodies on thorns, the spikes on barbed wire fences, or any available sharp point. This helps them to tear the flesh into smaller, more conveniently sized fragments and serves as a cache so that the shrike can return to the uneaten portions at a later time. But there's going to be more to it than that when we find out what Clarence's last name is. Also, by the way, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, just as Mr. and Mrs. Shrike live in apartment 321, the murder in the premiere episode Revenge took place in a hotel room. Room 321. Clarence and Elmer start to mount the stairs, but it is so hot and the air is so still in the building. I'm dying. It's a miserable, hot, humid day. Living in a tenement on a day like this has living boiled alive in the steam room. Why don't we open the door? I'm dying of the heat. Dying, yes. Killing weather. More murders are committed at 92 degrees Fahrenheit than at any other temperature. Clarence, I know the statistics. Yes, and the police do too. Come. It's killing weather. Now, earlier in the episode, the two men looked at a thermometer and saw that it was 89 degrees. What's the temperature now? They huff and puff as they climb the stairs. Oh. Under 90, men's tempers stay cool. But right at 92 degrees, we all turn irritable, itchy, out of sorts. Oh, oh. Hatred boils at this point. The least thing, word, look, or sound, an irritable murder. They find her apartment without looking at the number because they just go to where the radio is blasting and her voice is carrying over it, yelling at the neighbors up above. They knock on the door and she doesn't hear it, so they just walk in, which doesn't seem to phase her at all. She turns and looks at them and says... Could you turn down the radio? Look, I have fire nothing. Sorry, but I think I work. Wait a minute. I tell you, keep those kids quiet. That's it. I right, look, I look. I, I, I'm very busy, so uh, so make your pitch. The apartment is a mess. She's got a bottle of pop in one hand and a Donald Duck comic book folded back in the other hand. Jack Seabrook at Bare Bones E-Zine notes that in the wake of the Kefauver hearings into juvenile delinquency and comic books, that the fact that she's holding a comic is a coded reference in 1955, showing that she is of low intelligence. As she goes to turn off the radio, the camera moves to a low angle so that when she sits in the foreground and the two men stand behind in the background, they loom over her and us. And now, as Clarence introduces himself and Elmer, we get their last names. Uh, my name is Clarence Fox. Uh, this is Mr. Shaw. How do you do? We're retired insurance salesmen. Ah, his name is Clarence Fox. That changes everything. This is from an article from the Institute for Wildlife Studies website. The island Fox on San Clemente Island has been identified as a predator of the severely endangered race of the loggerhead shrike, 
This presents a novel challenge for wildlife conservationists, as both the fox and shrike are unique species on the island. As an alternative to lethal control, the Institute helped devise a shock collar for foxes residing in the areas of shrike nests that was activated if they got within 10 meters of a nest. The system was used until shrike populations had sufficiently increased to a point where concern over nest predation by foxes was minimal. So now who is the predator here after all? The fox or the shrike? May, may we sit down? I said I'm busy. I got things to do. Thank you. As you could hear, when he asks if he may sit down, she doesn't answer that. But he responds, thank you. And he sits. Is he being sarcastic? Did he not hear her? Or is he, the fox, taking control? The camera moves in on Clarence. Still low angle, so he looms over us. There's a fly buzzing around and landing on his arm, which I just think is wonderful. And he explains to Mrs. Shrike why he's there, though she appears to be barely listening, reading her comic book instead. You see, now that we've retired, we're trying to find a way to save people, profiting by the statistics we learned while we were with the insurance company. Too many people die before they should, Mrs. Shrike. You got me scared. You see, we thought we might set up a new type of service to help sick people. Who's sick? I ain't sick. Oh, but you are. Now, look, don't tell me what I am. You know, people can be sick and not know it. And our job is to find those people and warn them. Now, people are dying every day. Why? They get tired. They're not careful enough. And the result is they really kill themselves. I don't kill myself. Not if I can help it. Clarence, though, wants to prove to her that she might kill herself. So he goes over to her bathtub, which is right there in the living room. Now look. There you see. This light bulb hangs right over the bathtub. Now, its wire is frayed, the insulation worn off. Just one phone call to the electrician, and he would see to it right away. Now watch. Watch. Uh, look. Look. Here you are in the tub. <laughs> Wet from head to foot. Now, you start to get out. You slip. You grab. So... One more person dead. But it's Clarence who then slips as he tries to get out of the tub, and Elmer must help him. He's the one who's out of his element here, not Mrs. Shrike. And as such, what Clarence is saying doesn't penetrate. Well, what's Lightcore got to do with me? I, I didn't make it that way. No. No, but you left it that way. It could kill you. So? So I'm dead. So, you, so you're here for the funeral early. Why? Why? Place is a death trap. Hey, listen, uh, the landlord sent you to check up on us? No, no, no. Here now. Here. Look. What? This food should be in a nice box. Haven't you ever heard of botulism? What's that? Food poisoning. Why, in this weather, this heat, 91 degrees. 91? What? Hey, what's the matter, you funny? You uh, been out in the sun or something? He has been out in the sun, but that's not the point. 
Discovering her thermometer, he now lets us know that we're one degree away from killing weather. Clarence, meanwhile, continues to try to convince Mrs. Shrike that she's in danger. He tries to warn her about your husband, wherever he is. Right now, he's getting hotter and hotter. Well, you ain't telling me nothing. She's more concerned about what Mr. Fox is up to. Hey, listen, what, what are you doing? You, you, you going around the whole building, all the rooms, making speeches? No, no. What? You, you just come here to my room? Just to you. Why, what for? What, what, are, you, what are you bothering me for? I want to help you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's rich. Now, please, listen to me before it's too late. Now, we all make mistakes in life, right? Yeah. We lose money, we get sick. A million things happen to hurt us. And then we hate everybody. Yeah, now you're talking my language. We get mean. Yeah, sure. We turn so mean, we make people want to hit us, knock us down, or worse, maybe even kill us. Yeah. Go on, go on, go on. Could, could we open just one window here? I don't want the window open in here. Jack Seabrook says Fox begs Mrs. Shrike to let him open a window in the stifling flat, but she refuses, unwilling to allow any new idea to enter or change her mind. But one new idea has entered her mind. Yeah. Now you've been watching me, huh? Only in order to help. What are you, what are you doing? You having a ball or something? Going around the tenement district, seeing how everybody lives? Who you think you are? You come sniffed around here. You don't like nothing you see. And in her rage, she reveals herself so that she ceases to be this monster and becomes a sympathetic, pathetic figure. You tell everybody what to do. Open the window, you say. Let a little fresh air. Now open the window, you let in the flies in your date, you stupid. Turn down the radio, you say. Why? Why? So, so I can hear the trucks outside and the kids yelling? Fix the leaky gas here, huh? You want to lend me the money? I'll fix it. Listen, I can fix everything around here. I can fix the whole place. I'll sweep the floor, make a real nice. Sweep the floor and uh, put on a nice clean dress, huh? Wash the dishes and comb my hair. I burn up all the junk. Burn up all the junk around me. Fix it all up real nice. Sure, anything. I gotta fix it all up, but you gotta promise me something. You gotta do one thing for me. You promise me one thing. Anything. Make me 20 years younger. Can you do that, huh? And then take about 40 pounds off that slob of a husband I got so, so he don't come home mad or drunk or maybe both. And then, and then fix up this here place. Fix it up so, so I can't hear the neighbors next door, upstairs, and down there. And then give, give me one of them air, air coolers. One of them air conditioners. So a person can sleep at night. All during July, August, and September. I understand your problem. Oh, baloney. You don't understand the nose on your face, you stupid. Oh, what do you think you know about me? Come on, what do you think you know? I, I'm 45 years old, is that a crime? I used to be 30, and then, and then I was 20, and then I, I was a nice-looking man, too. No kidding. Like, I could show you some people that knew me then. You're so stupid. You, you Go on, you, tell, tell me something about myself I don't know already. Go on. I... I don't know how no, to proceed. No, he doesn't know how to proceed because he's suddenly faced with a human being, a human being in pain. And in the face of her continuous rage, he gets indignant, confronting her. 
so that she, in turn, picks up the food that he talked about before that should have been in the refrigerator, and she throws it at him. His reaction is to raise his cane and try to strike her with it, which he would have done, except that Elmer restrains him. There's a strange little moment here, actually. The camera faces the two men as he raises his cane. Then there's a slow fade, and when it fades back in again, the camera is behind him. I wonder if this was really the way the episode was to start, whether there was a commercial there. In any event, Elmer successfully restrains Clarence from acting the predator, the fox attacking the Shrike. And the victim, the Shrike, doesn't understand where this violence has come from. She lives with so much pain and resentment that she doesn't really realize what her effect is on others. What are you doing? What are you, what are you doing that for? What's the matter? Are you trying to kill me or something? I never done nothing to you. What's the matter with him? Is he crazy or something? He's trying to kill me. Did you see that? Let's get out of here. Mr. Shaw hustles Mr. Fox out of the apartment building. Clarence sits on a garbage can right there by the door, exhausted, and he comes to a realization. I treated her as a fascinating kind of specimen when I should have seen her as a lost soul, a human being in need of understanding. All I had to do was put my hand out to touch her. She, she never would have felt it, wouldn't she? We'll never know now. Elmer suggests that they go and talk to her husband, but Clarence has given up. He may now realize that she's a human being, not a statistic, but he's more interested in statistics than he has in human beings. The two men start to leave, but there happens to be a bar across the street called, in big letters above the door, Bar. And here comes Albert Shrike, staggering across, Having had a few between the time he broke the volute off the banister and now, we get a close-up of his waist, and there's something hanging from his belt. Longshoreman's hook. Elma. Elma, what's the temperature now? 92. 92 degrees Fahrenheit, right on the nose. There's a crossfade, and Elmer and Clarence are standing back across the street again, near the cleaners, and the steam coming out of the cleaner's shop. As the police arrive, and a crowd gathers, just as we saw at the beginning of the episode. And the music rises, and Clarence writes in his notebook. And we don't have to see what happened to know what happened, and Mrs. Shrike has become a statistic again. Then the two men turn and exit, disappearing once again into the steam. Now, Jack Seabrook asks, what is the significance of the smoke or steam? I think it suggests that they are like gods, as Mrs. Shrike accused them of thinking themselves greek or roman gods who observe the actions of humans and occasionally try to intervene and i like that comment by jack or it could be that entering the steam signals the end of this particular failed experiment they entered the reality of the situation and now they've withdrawn mr fox is back to his notebook and it's on to the next potential disaster back to jack seabrook for a moment he has a letter of comment on his page 
from a reader named John Kenrick, who noted, I just looked this up to make sure, which is that the mention of 92 degrees Fahrenheit being the temperature at which most murders are committed was also in something the sheriff said in the 1953 sci-fi classic, It Came From Outer Space, a movie which Mr. Bradbury had a hand in. Let's take a look. Did you know, Putnam, that more murders are committed at 92 degrees Fahrenheit than any other temperature? I read an article once. Lower temperatures, people are easy going. Over 92, it's too hot to move, but just 92, people get irritable. How about that? John Kenrick is right. And that's something I never would have noticed without John and Jack. So thanks to both of them for that. Now, the story first appeared in McLean's magazine in 1954. Jack Seabrook says that an early title for it was Fahrenheit 92. By the time it appears in Ray's collection, The October Country, which predates this episode as far as I can tell, it's called Touched with Fire. So what do these titles mean? Shopping for Death may refer to Mrs. Shrike, who through her very personality draws her own destruction. She is, as the story calls her, a murderee. On the other hand, since Clarence is the fox, the predator, perhaps he's the one shopping for death, going around with his statistics, creating his grocery list of all the disasters happening around him. Touched with fire, on the other hand, seems to refer to the heat and the anger and resentment and murderous passion that erupts from the heat. Or perhaps, to continue Jack's motif, it refers to contact with a divinity. So why the title change? Well, I don't know, but Shopping for Death feels like an old melodramatic 1930s radio show title, but Touched with Fire fits the story better, I think. Because while I like the Hitchcock episode, it does lose some of the atmosphere and imagery that Ray instilled in his writings. Let's look at the opening paragraph of Ray's story. They stood in the blazing sunlight for a long while, looking at the bright faces of their old-fashioned railroad watches while the shadows tilted beneath them, swaying, and the perspiration ran out under their porous summer hats. When they uncovered their heads to mop their lined and pinkened brows, their hair was white and soaked through, like something that had been out of the light for years. One of the men commented that his shoes felt like two loaves of baked bread, and then, sighing warmly, added, are you positive this is the right tenement? Here are some of the other sections I like. Mrs. Deathwish, said Mr. Fox quietly. It's like watching a two-year-old run out on a battlefield. Any moment you say, she'll hit a mine, bang! Get the temperature just right. Too much humidity, everyone itching, sweating, irritable. Along will come this fine lady, whining, shrieking, and so goodbye. When they spoke... It was a submerged, muffled talk of men in steam rooms, preposterously tired and remote. True, said Fox patiently, earnestly, nodding, but all I want to do is post a warning. Drop a little seed in her subconscious. Tell her, you're a murderee, a victim looking for a place to happen. One tiny seed I want to plant in her head and hope it'll sprout and flower. Over 100, it's too hot to move. Under 90, cool enough to survive. But right at 92 degrees lies the apex of irritability. Everything is itches and hair and sweat and cooked pork. The brain becomes a rat rushing around a red-hot maze. 
the least thing, a word, a look, a sound, the drop of a hair, and irritable murder. Irritable murder, there's a pretty and terrifying phrase for you. The radio blasted out the rest of its song. The voice bellowed. Fox rapped again and tested the knob. To his horror, the door got free of his grasp and floated swiftly inward, leaving them like actors trapped on stage when a curtain rises too soon. They were buried in a flood of sound. It was like standing in the spillway of a dam and pulling the gate lever. Instinctively, the old men raised their hands, wincing, as if the sound were pure blazing sunlight that burnt their eyes. She ripped a dog-eared packet of cheap cigarettes like it was a bone with meat on it, snapped one of the cigarettes in her smeared mouth and lit it, sucking greedily on the smoke, jetting it through her thin nostrils until she was a feverish dragon confronting them in a fire-clouded room. Fox stared in dismay at the hat, as she swore at him in a language that turned corners, blazing, that flew in the air like great searing torches. The woman knew every language and every word in every language. She spoke with fire and alcohol and smoke. He was in a blazing yellow jungle. The room was drowned in fire. It clenched upon him. The furniture seemed to shift and whirl about. The sunlight shot through the rammed shut windows, firing the dust, which leaped up from the rug in angry sparks when a fly buzzed a crazy spiral from nowhere. They turned and watched the man move ponderously in fiery darkness, one step at a time, up into the tenement house, a creature with the ribs of a mastodon and the head of an unshorn lion, with great beefed arms, irritably hairy, painfully sunburnt. And the end of the story... They stood in the little store across from the tenement. It was 5.30, the sun tilting down the sky, the shadows the color of hot summer grapes under the rare few trees and in the alleys. What was it hanging out of the husband's back pocket? Longshoreman's hook, steel, sharp, heavy-looking, like those claws one-armed men used to wear on the end of their stumps years ago. Mr. Fox did not speak. What's the temperature, asked Mr. Fox a minute later as if he were too tired to turn his head to look. Store thermometer still reads 92. 92 right on the nose. Fox sat on a packing crate, making the least motion to hold an orange soda bottle in his fingers. Cool off, he said. Yes, I need an orange pop very much, right now. They sat there in the furnace, looking up at one special tenement window for a long time, waiting, waiting. Now, Jack Seabrook calls our attention to the key change from the story to the teleplay. He says, instead of yelling at Fox and Shaw like an inhuman creature in the story, Mrs. Shrike becomes humanized. The tirade turns into an explanation of why their well-intentioned suggestions ignore the reality of her situation. And that's absolutely true. In fact, that's the thing I like most about the episode. In the story, the two men are waiting, waiting, because the murder is an inevitability. In the episode with the humanized Mrs. Shrike, the murder becomes a tragedy. In 1985, around the same time as the revamped Alfred Hitchcock Presents and revamped Twilight Zone, HBO gave us the Ray Bradbury Theater, totaling 65 episodes over a period of seven years. One of those episodes, presented in 1990, 
was Touched with Fire, again with a teleplay by Ray, this time starring Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Annabelle Shrike, Barry Morse as Mr. Fox, and Joseph Shaw as Mr. Shaw. This teleplay did allow Ray to put in more of his dialogue from the story, such as... Look at her, Mrs. Deathwish. Like watching a two-year-old wander out onto a battlefield. Any moment, she'll run into a mine, and then... You get temperature just right. A little too much humidity, everybody sweating and itching and irritable. And then along comes this fine lady, whining and shrieking, and goodbye. And this... Everything, everything is just itches and sweating, and your mind is like a crazed rat rushing around in a red-hot maze. And then just one word, just one, one look, one sound can produce irritable murder. He also gets the opportunity to call Mrs. Shrike Murdery, almost for certain, an accident waiting to happen. But unfortunately... Like almost all of these 80s anthology shows, it feels the need to amp things way up. So in this version, Mrs. Shrike loses that humanity she had in Shopping for Death. She's physically abusive. Instead of just pointing out food sitting out, her refrigerator door is open. And then this happens when Mr. Fox gets overcome by the heat in the room. Oh, it's hot, isn't it? Very hot. Um, Ma'am, uh, could, could, could you open the window, please? Why don't you be my guest? Thank you. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, don't open. And in the final confrontation between Fox and Shrike... You're a loser. Oh, now listen. You're a washed up oh, no, man. You're Please. No, that's, that's what you are. You're a handsman. That is offensive. You're a senile I'm not a... Dare you're How washed up dare you? Husband. You mean miserable And he actually strikes her. But the two best examples of 1980s overkill are the floor that Mrs. Shrike lives on. Is she on the top floor? Yep. And no elevator. Uh-oh. And we are going to climb up after we've planned our strategy. Strategy? By the time you reach the top floor, you're dead. And the temperature that brings about irritable murder. At 102 degrees Fahrenheit, more murders are committed than at any other temperature. Go on. Over that, it's too hot to move. Under that, it's cool enough to survive. But right on 102 degrees lies the apex of irritability. I can't listen to those changes and not think of Spinal Tap. What we do is if we need that extra 
push over the cliff. You know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Now, I mentioned before that EC Comics adapted 31 of Ray's stories. Shopping for Death was not one of them. However, the story itself was reprinted by Harvey Kurtzman, who was one of the major contributors to EC Comics in the 50s and the original editor of Mad, in his humor magazine Help in the early 60s. And there was a comic book version of the story entitled Touched by Fire in Ray Bradbury Comics number 2, released in 1993, with story and art by Sean Phillips. That about wraps it up, except to do a little housekeeping. First, this was the last of three Robert Stevens-directed episodes in a row, but we don't have to wait all that long for his next one. That is Place of Shadows, episode 22. And second, there were plenty of extras in this episode, what with the crowd scenes at the opening disasters and the street scenes with the kids and the ice cream and the lemonade stand. But seven of these people are given credit at the end of the show. Our assignment if we choose to accept it, is to figure out what roles these seven people played. IMDb is essentially no help. They have actors listed with no role whatsoever. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion is much better. But even with that, we really need to use our own eyes and ears to determine who is who. We'll start with Alfred Linder. The Alfred Hitchcock Companion lists him as the male neighbor. He's in one more episode, episode 38, The Creeper, where he plays the shoemaker. I took a look at that character, then looked back at this episode, and sure enough, he's the male neighbor in that he's the neighbor in the window that Mrs. Shrike first grapples with. You know, this guy. He was in I Was a Male War Bride, The Robe, The Invisible Boy, the science fiction theater episode Signal from the Moon, and he was Slippery Elm in the Adventures of Superman episode The Unlucky Number. You did it, didn't she? Yeah, and I got an idea how. What do you mean, Slippery? We had it all rigged, right? I was supposed to win. Miss it by three just to make it look good. And then us and the boys split up all the money, right? Get to the point. The point is only three of us knew the exact number. And one of us decided to cash in on it. Yeah, and if it ain't you, if it ain't me, that leaves Dexter. Exactly. That leaves Dexter. Alfred Linder died in 1957 at the age of 55. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists Charlotte Knight, not to be confused with the minor league baseball team, the Charlotte Knights, as the female neighbor. But there's various female neighbors, so who is she exactly? Well, she's in two more episodes. Her next one is Touche, episode 35 of season four. I looked her up there and figured out that she's one of the women by the baby carriage. Specifically, she's the woman who says, You're the baby. She played a slave in the Ten Commandments. She's in the Lights Out episode, The Silent Supper. The Tales of Tomorrow episode, Substance X and the Whistler episode, Stranger in the House. She's in various 60s television series like One Step Beyond, Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, and The Big Valley. And Charlotte Knight died in 1977 at the age of 83. 
Lee Erickson is listed in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion as the boy at the fire hydrant. I think he's also the white kid who follows Mrs. Shrike to the ice cream vendor. We could get into why the black kid isn't listed in the credits, but that's a whole other long discussion. Lee is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Alibi Me, episode seven of season two. And I looked that up, and I think he shot up quite a bit in the year between the episodes because that kid is much taller. His first role as a child actor was as Boy in Devil's Canyon. He's in The Seven Little Foys, The Joseph Cotton Show, Lassie, The Danny Thomas Show, and this episode of Father Knows Best, playing the newspaper boy. Oh, hello there. You're uh, not the boy we used to have, are you? No, sir, I'm new. His last credit on IMDb is as a stable boy in the 1962 TV series National Velvet. And I can't find anything else about him. Jack Tesler is, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Companion, a man in the street, which doesn't help that much. So I went looking for Jack. He's in one more episode, Momentum, episode 39. He's in Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, The Buster Keaton Story, an episode of Family Affair, an episode of All in the Family. He's listed in IMDb as being the waiter in an episode of My Living Doll, and a waiter in an episode of My Mother the Car. He does not appear to be this waiter from My Living Doll. Dr. McDonald, I think I should tell you that the lady left. But he does appear to be this waiter from My Mother the Car. How do I get out of here? Through the front, that is no bad. And now that we know what he looks like, we can identify him as the man at the beginning of the episode. You know, the one who says, 50 miles an hour on the main boulevard. He must have been crazy. We've seen Leola Wendorf before, back in episode 11, Guilty Witness. But in spite of that, I couldn't find her anywhere in the crowds. I got a hint from the Alfred Hitchcock Companion, which lists her as the woman with accent. So I think she's this voice from the scene of the suicide jumper. One minute I saw him standing up against the window, and, and then I saw him between, right between the window and the ground. This is her last appearance if you want to call it an appearance, in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Ralph Montgomery, listed in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents companion as a man in the street, was previously seen as the drunk in Salvage, episode 6. So he's easy to identify as the man who says, Somebody left a cigarette burning. That's what it was. A little thing like that, now look at it. Look at the whole darn building. This is his last appearance in the series. Finally, Bob Morgan, whom the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists as the other man, appears to be the guy in the car. He was married to Yvonne DiCarlo and was primarily a stuntman, though he did appear as an actor in westerns such as the Alamo, and he was one of the slaves who shouted, I'm Spartacus, in Spartacus. But IMDb says that he was very severely injured and nearly died while performing a stunt during the shooting of How the West Was Won. During the filming of a gunfight that takes place on a moving railroad flat car loaded with logs, one of the chains that held the logs snapped, and Morgan was crushed by the falling timber and lost a leg. It took him five years to recover from his injuries. His wife, 
actress Yvonne DiCarlo, put her career on hold in order to nurse him back to health. His stunt career was over at that point, but he still appeared a few more times as an actor in episodes of Gunsmoke, Heck Ramsey, and Beretta, and in the films The Culpepper Cattle Company and Silverado. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Bob Morgan died in 1999 at the age of 82. So what should we take from this episode? Well, Trevor H., another reader of Jack Seabrook's review, comments, Unlike later Hitchcock's, this is not about a clever plot twist. The story arc's strength is its very predictability and sadly inevitable denouement. And maybe that's enough to just leave it there. Now here's Hitch to send us off with me filling the gap in the outro again. The sound effects you hear as he's talking are the result of him rubbing his hands on a rag and bending his fingers because he has some of that loud squeaking fluid on his hands. You needn't sit there staring. We're not going to show you any more. In fact, I'm not even going to tell you what happened. Television audiences are becoming entirely too dependent. You expect us to do everything for you. This oil is terribly difficult to get rid of. Look, while I'm working on this, please listen closely to the following and do exactly what they tell you. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Wild River, East of Eden, It Came from Outer Space, Bradbury Speaks, The Illustrated Man, The 1966 Fahrenheit 451, The 2018 Fahrenheit 451, Something Wicked This Way Comes, The Twilight Zone Season 3, Moby Dick, The Picasso Summer, Father Knows Best, The Adventures of Superman Seasons 3 and 4, The Andy Griffith Show Season 3, Star Trek Season 3, the Robe, Cool Hand Luke, Perry Mason Season 2, Volume 1, This is Spinal Tap, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, which features Michael and Sarah, but which I ultimately decided not to use, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Martian Chronicles, DOA, I Was a Communist for the FBI, Bonzo Goes to College, Francis Covers the Big Town, Tarzan and the She-Devil, Captain Kidd and the Slave Girl, The Creature with the Atom Brain, Broken Arrow, The I Love You Alice B. Toglas Trailer, Satan's School for Girls, There Will Come Soft Rains, Zero Hour, The Ray Bradbury Interview Clips, The Shadow Episode Sabotage, and The Clip for My Dream of Genie are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. You can also leave comments on iTunes and the Ann Arbor District Library website aadl.org. I got two very nice reviews in October on iTunes from Lucha Kaiju and Snookfan. So thank you to both of you for that. I also got a nice compliment from Mike Lynn 
on the library website. So thank you, Mike, for that. Next time, episode 19, The Derelicts, starring Robert Newton. Next week at the same time, I hope to see you again. Good night. Thank you.